Good. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mike Armstrong podcast show. And uh, this afternoon, I'm joined by uh, Nick Reed. And uh, Nick Reed is a speaker, entrepreneur, author, and coach. He graduated from Texas State University with a degree in psychology and a degree in philosophy. And uh, pre pre uh, presently, presently, Nick is working for the Americans for Prosperity Foundation as a speaker, content creator, and facilitator for their emerging civil dialogue programming in an attempt to address the growing divide between Americans today. So how are you doing today, uh, Nick? You okay? I'm doing fantastic. Couldn't be better, actually. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I myself am doing fantastic too. I've had a great uh, experience during the lockdown, um, starting my podcast and chatting with people, uh, having lots of entrepreneur chats. And the place I usually start as this uh, started in the lockdown, I usually like to find out a little bit about how the lockdown has been for you. And also, is there any particular pivoting or anything different you've done during that time? The lockdown has actually been very positive for me. So before this, I was traveling probably about 70%. So it started to wear on me after a few years. And now we've gone digital, which means staring at a lot more screens, but it also means a lot more home time with my family, which is very important. So that's been very positive as well. And also eating a lot less airport food. I can cook my own food at home so I can get my health back under control and not just out of the negative, but probably go way into the positive too. So that's been very, very positive for me. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And, and how about um, sort of uh, anything different you've been doing in the business, you know, to take more advantage of online and that sort of thing? Right. Well, all my training and speaking has been in person. So this has been a pretty hard pivot to doing everything online. But I'm really enjoying the, the podcast scene right now. I think it's a very positive uh, pivot yeah. and you can be anywhere and your stadium, your, your audience can be as large or as small as you want it to be. Yeah. You don't have yeah. to even pay for a venue. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's the future, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I've been self-employed myself for about eight years before that um, I was in a corporate uh, tech startup that I, uh, you know, helped grow, you know, quite large quite quickly, a 20x the sales team, a corporate sales team myself, from doing 300,000 to 5.7 million, uh, going from seven to 17 people. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite used to fast pace and fast growth. And since I've been self-employed, I've been trying to get people onto the internet, you know, older entrepreneurs, especially, trying to get them onto the internet and taking advantage of all the wonderful technology. And COVID come along and did a much better job of it than I could ever have done. That's right. It's brought pretty much everybody online. We're right now. I think if we had invested in zoom, we'd, we'd have a lot more uh, charity fuel to share right now with the world. I think. Yeah, definitely. There's, uh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was definitely, I wish I invested in zoom and, and, and all the other sort of Amazon, all the other businesses that are, that are online and that are digital and that were well positioned to take advantage of a lockdown situation. Take yeah. advantage of a lockdown situation. You know, Marcus Aurelius has a great quote and he said, what stands in the way becomes the way. And of course he was talking about war, right? But that quote has been used by people in so many different industries to think about what's the opportunity in the crisis that's, that's facing us today. And similarly, I've seen in business trainings, the, the, the Chinese character for crisis, which is a combination of two different characters. One is danger and the other is opportunity. And I think today people are looking at what's going on from, from kind of almost a, just the negative aspect of it. What's the risk? What's the danger? And we're not really looking at the opportunity. And I think that there's a major uh, difference in, in mindsets here to be able to see what, what you're talking about and to see all that's possible that can, you can do to benefit others and that this crisis can offer uh, you. Like you were talking about earlier, do you want to mention any of that? Yeah, yeah, go, go for it, yeah, yeah. So if you notice, a lot of the focus today has been on how can we prevent deaths, right? 
That's it. We wear a mask. Why? Because we don't want to get other people sick. We want to prevent those deaths. As long as the death count is declining, then we define the, our, our austerity measures as having been successful. But who is asking the question, what does it actually mean to live well? I mean, if we were to take this to the ultimate extreme, think about what would it be like if we were to be able to, to ultimately accomplish the, the subtle dream here of defeating death in its entirety to where we, we have mastered mastery and control over life itself and nothing can harm us, right? Basically to be, to be gods, right? With that kind of level of control. What would it be like for a day? What would it be like for a week? Think about it. What would it be like for a month with that kind of control? Nothing can harm you, right? Unless you, you want it to harm you because you have all the power in the world, right? Nothing can surprise you if you're omniscient and omnipotent unless you're going to make it happen. You're the dreamer of the dream here, right? Well, eventually you're going to want the surprise button. I mean, what a boring and lonely world it is where nobody needs anybody anymore in utopia or whatever, right? But when you look out the window today and you see that there are people who actually need help, there are people, there's, there's things we can do to make the world a better place right now. And not just at some giant top-down global level, but within our own families. There are grandparents who are locked inside of nursing homes. There are people who might be infected in the service industry or many industries where their business had to shut down right now. There's opportunity to make the world a better place in literally every single direction that we look. And the, the, the kind of meaning and purpose and I think gratification that people can get from that, I don't think people realize. You know, we, we go to the movies and we watch, you know, our heroes in a fictional scenario go and, and save the world and overcome adversity and do what only they can do, right? While in our own lives, we don't even notice any of the opportunities to, to do these things ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that a lot of the, the, the mindset of just avoiding risk at all costs is underlying this. And we're not looking at the fact that to actually live and to live life well requires some risk. And I don't mean reckless, but I mean, it does require some calculated risk. If you go bungee jumping or hell, you just drive to the store, there's, there's risk in that. There's risk every time that you get in a relationship with somebody. There's risk when you decide that you're going to take on a job. There's risk when you decide you're going to fly to a new country or try anything new. You know, there's, there's always risk. There's risk involved in living. And this mentality that we have to solve our problems through control is going to lead us to being in straitjackets in a padded room voluntarily or involuntarily. And I'm going to ask, what's the cost? You know, what is the cost, the real cost? And what does success really look like? And does it look like total conquering of death and getting the death rate down to zero? And I would say, if so, we're, we're not even doing a good job of that because there are things like car accidents and other problems that are creating more death than this virus. Yeah, I think, uh, my, me personally, I think if you add up all of, what happens is, is people become one point politicians and they're, they're dealing with one issue, which is the COVID, yeah? But COVID does not stand alone outside of economics, outside of mental health, outside of, um, you know, cancer, outside of all of these other uh, things, you know? And, and ultimately, I think a lot of the time we're looking at this one point situation and going, okay, we don't want to have any more deaths. But, you know, if you weigh up all of the other things we're losing, yeah, actually you add them all up and they're probably much worse than the, 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 the one standalone, you know, effect of, of COVID, especially as COVID is not really taking out, you know, the strong in our population is actually, it's, it's only affecting the, 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 the people who've already got issues, you know, mostly. It's mostly affecting people who've already got issues. But what we're doing is, is affecting the, the people who COVID is not going to affect that much, but we're affecting them in locking them up and, and you know, and, and, and giving them mental health issues and, you know, stopping them from being able to make a livelihood. So we're actually affecting, I personally think, we to save people who were um, worse off through COVID, we're actually affecting people who are better off in the rest of their lives. So we're actually making stronger people weaker rather than the weak, you know, letting some of the weak go. Unfortunately, to me, I wouldn't have done a lockdown situation. I'd have just said, 
if you're over 50 or got an underlying uh, health issue, stay inside. The rest of the population, get on and work with the small probabilities that you could get affected because you could get knocked over by a car. You could, you know, fall out of the sky in a plane. You know, you could do all these things have risks and probabilities associated to death, but they're also unlikely as well. And, you know, they're just, we just got to carry on with our life as, as best as normal. And I think, I think actually we may have caused more problems in this situation than we've solved in the long run. History may see that. History will only tell. And hindsight is twenty twenty. But I wish that we could right now look right and see what is right in front of our eyes right now without having to lose it and look back in retrospect and see what we missed. We have an incredible opportunity right now because we have become to a, a heightened level of extreme polarization in the world where people are not just afraid of each other, not just estranged from each other, but are actually demonizing each other. And this COVID situation is no different. You've got the, the anti-mask people and you've got the mask people and you've got the, well, the, the tests, the CDC came out with, they only are showing 50 up to 50% false positives camp. And you got the other camp that says, well, that's the best that we got. And you, there's all kinds of uh, sides of the coin here, not just in the scientific community and the political community, but within people's own households and people are becoming polarized, extremely polarized over this issue. Yeah. What's, what's, what's interesting is it's not just this issue. No, Go ahead. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the same as the Black Lives Matter. It's the same as the Brexit in the UK. It's the same as the, you know, uh, Trump. You know, uh, unfortunately, the world is getting more and more polarised. What, what I believe is the problem is that everyone in the world seems to want to be right and want to convince other people that they're right. And actually, they just need to understand that actually both people can be right. There isn't a right and a wrong. And sometimes it's just a difference of opinion. And everybody has a right to whichever side they're on. And everyone can, can voice their opinion. But we've got to come up with rules and, and ways of living that actually, you know, keep the majority happy, you know, and that can sometimes be a middle ground. Sometimes on some circumstances, it's, it's moving to the left and other circumstances is moving to the right and it's doing what's best for the general population as a whole. And I think tearing each other up over any of the um, it's situations that are going on is not actually conducive and helpful to anybody. It's not. You mentioned mental health earlier. This is, I think, taking a, a big toll on people's mental, most, a lot of people's mental health. I know I've had people confide with me in private that their mental health has been affected by it. And just staying inside so much, especially people who are extroverts, who are trapped in, inside of their house for fear of going outside and, you know, playing on the playground or whatever. I think that also there, there is a psychological component to this or a mental health component to it. And I don't just mean a mental health component to the impact of it, but I think a mental health component of what's, what's driving a lot of the control measures that we're seeing today. I think some of it is a protective measure, but I think some of it is actually just, we only know how to solve problems through control and top down. And there is a, a mental health component to controlling. I mean, you get to, when you see control come out in people, in extreme ways, right? There, there is in like in the psychoanalytical uh, literature, they talk about like sadomasochism, right? We talk about the sadism, the ability to control or, or the desire to control or dominate others or the ability to derive some kind of uh, pleasure or something from controlling and dominating other people. Well, this is a real thing, right? And in mental health, we always talk about it like it's this, this black and white fence. And there's people who have mental health issues. And then there's the us, right? And there's the normal, right? Well, who's the yardstick? Who's to say that it's actually not a continuum? And who, who, would, who is the perfectly neurologically and psychologically perfect person that we're comparing everybody to? Like it doesn't exist, right? Most likely, we're all on the spectrum a little bit, you know, we're all fluctuating in our mental health every single day and the the, the this issue of 
trying to solve problems through controlling others is probably not just happening with them over there or those guys in history, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Lenins, but it's, it's happening inside of each one of us, you know, and we deny that. And the more that we deny it, the more I think that we're actually prone to doing it. I think that it drives us. Carl Jung had a great quote and he said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Well, if we have this mental model that mental health doesn't affect us if we're normal people today, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society, right? I mean, those, what was normal during World War II in Germany was not necessarily healthy, but it was normalized. And everybody today says, well, you know, I would have been the family who was, you know, hiding Anne Frank and Jews in my attic for years while Nazi soldiers were campaigning around waiting to shoot people who were doing this. Statistically, extremely improbable. Jordan Peterson talks about this. He says that most likely we all would have been Nazis. There would have been like literally the, the crazy extremists who yeah, cared that much. The 90% the who conform would have been, you know, the statistics are there, you know, they, they go with the, right. the crowd, like, you know, only the 10% that, that think for themselves and, and, and try and do something different. Maybe they might have been, you know, hiding on Franks, but uh, the 90% would have just gone along with, it would have just been normal. Yeah. Because it's only again in hindsight, 2020, it's only in hindsight that you can actually look at that and think actually that was, that was wrong. But, you know, you can see how, you know, leadership, you know, how we can get to that stage where it's wrong, you know, because it didn't start in the wars. It started way before that. And, you know, it, it infiltrates you over time. And just like, you know, you look back at the war and go, well, yeah, you know, all those people that did what, what, what Hitler wanted, you know, were all wrong. But at the time, they were just going with the flow. It's just like you probably look back in history now and go in, you know, all those people that you know, locked themselves in during this pandemic were wrong. But at the time, we're just going with the flow. You know, that's what I think history is going to see is that, you know, why do we just all lock ourselves in? Like, you know, like crazy letters. Like, I don't mean, like, but uh, that's my own uh, view on it. But, you know, when, when especially like, for example, kids have been off school for a long time and the stats have always been that kids don't really get affected too much by this. And also they don't pass it on too much. And that's becoming more and more um, prevalent that that's the information that's coming out. But still, people don't want to send, send their kids to school because, you know, once you start playing around with people with what's normal for people, it's hard for them to just snap straight back and just accept it as being normal again. You know, they, that's, the, that's the pandemic that we've created. Is there's a lot of people, kids and all sorts of people that are frightened to touch other human beings. Right. And I think that what's really important and interesting for me in all this is that nobody knows what's going on. There are people who on both sides of every single divide that think they know what's going on. And we, we play this game called the game of who's right. But then there's a statistic that comes out the next day that throws that into question. And so what's important to make it through times of crisis like this, I think is a large degree of humility and toleration, toleration for other viewpoints and opinions that don't agree with us. And I think it's important because one, we don't know that we're right and we don't know what's going on and we have to admit that. But two, also, because that's the only way you can learn and grow is with different viewpoints. Like you can grow and learn with your own viewpoint and from your own life experiences. And I'm a big proponent of that as well. But through conversation with other people, especially people with different backgrounds and different gifts than you and different, you know, experiences, you can learn so much more. You can live. I remember talking to a psychoanalyst uh, up the road who was telling, I said, what's it like to work in your field? He said, it's like getting to live a thousand lives through all my patients. I get to hear the most awesome, incredible scary, crazy, sad, confusing, baffling stuff you've ever heard. And I just can't imagine being a, how much we could grow and learn if we were able to have that kind of 
humility and toleration and openness to other people, especially those we disagree with. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And that, that's why I think there's a, a lack of leadership. Uh, I've, I've thought about this for a long time in, in leaders, you know, in, 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 and that's, you know, leaderships are people who, um, you know, work with everybody to find out what they want and to, to bring them through, if you like. And I think at the moment, our leaders are, are, are very uh, dictatorial a little bit you know we can do this we can't do that and, and a lot of this come from like i say no real facts you know they, they listen to data but data can be manipulated to say whatever you want it to say which is why you know different uh, political parties will use the same data and the same results to come up with two completely polar opposite you know results from from that data because data can be manipulated however you want to you know manipulate it and i think at the moment there's a couple of good world leaders who are listening to people and being you know um not rush you know not rushing into things taking their all the viewpoints and all of that and then there's other leaders i think you were just you know flip-flopping from one thing to the next and just no clear communication and you know I don't, I don't you know i think there's a there's been a lack in uh, leadership skills and, and quality of leadership uh, and leaders in the political game for a while and i think uh, to me you know these sort of incidences highlight that they show that you know i think um, you know sometimes you just want somebody who you know is going to look at things from much a wider perspective and take into consideration more people and, and work with the nuances and the gray areas and all that rather than just you know be very black and white and, and, and one point focused and forget about everything else that's going on yeah there's a lot of false choices today there may even be a a, a glaring gap in our leadership that can be filled and what if there's a difference between leadership by by authority you've got the title, the position, and so on, and leadership by competence. Would we brought in that dimension? Is there competent and incompetent leadership? And what exactly are is the yardstick we're using to evaluate? You know, I heard the, when I asked somebody what leadership meant to them, or maybe I asked, how do you know when someone is a good leader? When are you willing to, to follow somebody? The best response I ever got was, when I look into their eyes and I can see that they're in the place that I'm trying to get to. And I thought about that. That was really profound because how many leaders today are espousing things that, that they've, they've never talked about, or let's say the person who's like, if I'm trying to, uh, um, talk about, let's say I'm, I'm on the freedom camp, right? And I'm just talking about freedom all day. Freedom is so great. And you know, those guys who hate freedom, they're just a bunch of this and a bunch of that. And they're a bunch of pieces of that. And they're looking in my eyes and they're like, wow, this guy who talks about his freedom ideology is such a negative, depressing person. Like he's a really hostile, vitriolic person. He's not in a place I'm trying to get to. And then it discounts and undermines the legitimacy of everything that that person is doing, right? But if you see somebody and you look in their eyes and they're in a place that you're trying to get to, then everything that they say and do becomes an incredible light to how you can get there too. And I think that's incredibly profound, not just for us trying to evaluate who our leaders should be as we elect them and, and run ourselves and so on and so forth, but also because that kind of toxicity and vitriol exists mostly at the leadership level, right? It's mostly in our leaders that are the most polarized. When you see the false choices being presented, they're being presented by our, our leaders. You have legislators who won't sign on to good legislation if it's being written by somebody who's in a, a, the other party and who sign on to bad legislation if it's being written by somebody who's in their party, right? And it's, yeah. and, and that trickles down when you look at the, the symbols of maturity that people are getting. When they look at their leaders, that's what they are. They look at them as a symbol of maturity and the values that are being conveyed is a us and them mentality. It's, it's, it's all this sides thing. It's, it's, it's all about sides and divide and conquer rather than uh, collaborate and work together. You know, um, uh, a lot of the leadership at the moment is about building walls rather than bridges. You know, it's about, mm. um, it's about, you know, them versus us and, and we're going to win 
and all of that. You know, to me, party politics doesn't really work. I think um, I'd like to see a system where you know the the best every party put the best candidate that, that they could for each important role in government, and then everyone voted for the person. So therefore, you had cross-party people in different positions the best person from every party for that job and then they all learn to work together and collaborate and then we're producing an environment of, of, of working together and, a, and that of teamwork and it doesn't matter what side and where you're from we all can still build things together and get things done so to me the whole system is broken and uh, it needs uh, ripping up and, 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 and replanting and starting again Frederick Douglass had a great quote. He said, I will, I will unite with anybody to do right and nobody to do wrong. And today, no one will unite with anybody who's not on the same team or wearing the same colors. It's not just the Crips and the Bloods who are the Reds and the Blues. It's the Democrats and the Republicans and the Lefts and the Rights and the Liberals and the Conservatives. It's, we're divided at every, every angle. And, no, and we, the stalemate that we have today is a direct result of this, this ideology of us and them. It's a war mentality. And the war mentality leads to the control measures that we're seeing. It's like government is turned into because of this mindset, it's been used as if it's a football team. There's only one team in the game and both fans are cheering for the team to be on their side. And when they win, they just dominate the other side with whatever they want, impose all of their, their wants and wishes and moralities onto them. Yeah. But what if instead of being the, the, the team or the player, the government was just the ref? right? And made sure that everyone can live their lives freely as long as they're not imposing their will on others and just make sure they don't mm. and allowed people to solve them problems for themselves. Well, what would that be like? What if government didn't do it? What would people do about COVID, about Floyd, about all of the issues that we're so divided on? And right now, I don't think anybody has an answer. When I went into a school in, in Sweden, not just Sweden, I also did this all across the United States in different schools with the same response. I said, okay guys, today we're gonna to change the world. So what I want you to do is I want you to break into groups and I want you to pick one thing that you'd like to see change in the world more than anything else. And I want you to outline the best plan that you can think of to make it happen. And so they got in their groups and they went to work and they were all done in about five minutes. And I said, all right, well, let me hear it then. And so you, you so they came up to the front and one by one, they would read off what they've written. They said, well, we think that poverty is a big issue. And you know what the prime minister should do is, and then another would say, well, we think that homelessness is a big issue. And what the city should do is, da, 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 da. And then here in the United States, well, we think that overcriminalization is a big issue. And you know what the cops should do is it's always somebody yeah. else well, we have this should do and nobody's doing anything not about what they could do exactly and this lends to this top-down way of thinking and problem solving the president should do this the pope should do that the prime minister the council the congress the city but when everybody's talking about what the president should do no one's doing anything and secondly can 500 or however many people in leadership solve all the problems here in the United States of 340 million people across a continent that they've never met and don't know anything about, it's, you, it's impossible. You've worked with leaders. How many people can you effectively solve all of their problems as a white knight? Not very many. Oh. And so it's a really bad solution to, to think only in top-down ways. What people need to, to start thinking about is, what can I do? And that's a different conversation because when yeah, people it's like, it's like a sports team that's got leaders all over the pitch will be better than a, a team that's just got one leader. Yeah. Like when you have a disagreement with people, Mike, are they disagreeing with you about what you're going to go out the door and do to make the world a better place? Or are they disagreeing with, with you about uh, what we are saying that our leaders should spend our tax dollars on or force everybody else to do, right? It's always arguing about 
a top-down solution that's creating divisiveness because behind every law is force. But when people say, what am I going to do to make the world a better place? When I look out the window and I see an opportunity to make a difference, it, when I share that with somebody, all I get is recognition, acknowledgement, support, collaboration, invitation. Maybe even they're inspired to go out and do the equivalent themselves. You know, when that conversation shifts to a bottom-up conversation, a lot of things are possible that weren't possible before, especially in the collaborative aspect and especially in nuanced thinking because the best people to solve our problems is who? Ourselves. That's right. And that's it. You know, we, we come from a, a blame culture and, a, you know, it's not my fault, it's your fault. And that people, not enough people in this world take ownership of, of their entire life, you know, of everything. You know, ultimately, if, if something has happened to you and it's affected you, then who's to blame? You know, there's only one person that, that, that owns and runs you, and that is you. And when, the more people that uh, can understand that and can get to a point in their life where they take ownership, the more that we can get bottom-up um, you know, uh, impact on the world and, and the choices. If, if there wasn't no government in, in charge, you know, the people would have been able to come up with some, some routine or maybe a better one and actually just carrying on with life. That might be the routine that everybody come up with. It might, it might, have, been a better, it might have been a better one. You know, because unless the media and, and, and the government tells us this thing's going on anyway, we just carry on as normal. You know, 100 years ago, or we would have just carried on as normal because no one, no one would have known. Right. You know, if you ask people, if you were stuck on an island with a bunch of other people and you had to survive, uh, what would you do? And they talk about it. They say, well, we, we would need to find some water and we'd need clean water too. We'd have to filter it. Maybe we'd find some sand, right? And maybe we'd get some leaves and pool all that, the water when it rains. And they talk about all these things. At the end of it, they go, why was nobody talking about raping and pillaging? You know, the assumption is that if government doesn't do it, then people are too lazy and stupid and evil to do it themselves. And it would, it would be anarchy. People would just be, you know, burning churches and, 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 you know, destroying each other and it would be madness. But when you ask people to think in this experiment, which is basically the question, what if government didn't do it? And I'm not advocating that of for anarchy. I'm not advocating that we should get rid of the institution of government. I think it has a legitimate role, but in the thought experiment, right? Just to keep it pure so you can think through it. Those aren't things that people propose. No one's talking about killing and murdering and stealing and, and robbing and, and all the things that people fear would happen without total control. And so we have to really question whether or not our worldview that we have to solve everything and relate to the world through control is, is a valid one. And what's really at risk here, right? If what's really at risk? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. You know, I hear you. So um, I know you do, uh, you do coaching, etc. I know you're into um, psychology and physiology as well, which is two areas I'm interested in. So, uh, you know, um, are you familiar with uh, Dr. John Demartini and, uh, and uh, Brian Tracy? Tell me more. I think I've heard the name Martini. So Dr. John Demartini has read over 33,000 books on the area of psychology and physiology. So he's a- well, No wonder I've heard. <laughs> he's a grand master at, uh, at uh, all, you know, psychology and physiology, especially in, you know, uh, the um, taking control of your life and being in charge mm -hmm. of your own destiny, if you like, being able to motivate yourself from within by chasing the goal and the dream that you want to achieve rather than doing something else, you know? Um, mm. Yeah, so he's big into that. So somebody worth you you, you checking out, uh, and, and obviously Brian Tracy does a lot with psychology. Does the psychology of sales, the psychology of success, and the psychology of achievement. Like, you know, so they're, they're they're people I've been reading and listening to a lot from uh, on audiobooks, etc. During this lockdown period, but uh, you know, I'm sure you'll find uh, some of them uh, some some of them fascinating. Like, you know, from but, the sound uh, of it. Yeah, and, um, and I think Brian Tracy's read you know, thousands of books as well. They all re re read like a book a week or whatever, like, you know, and after in their 70s and have been doing it all their life, like, you know. Yeah, and how productive yeah. people, I mean, to write a thousand books, think about that. First of all, a thousand books of average, what, three, four hundred pages. 
That's a lot of writing. These guys are really prolific oh, awesome authors. I've never even, yeah. I couldn't even imagine writing that much. I think that no. we have barely just scratched the surface of our potential and what people are, are, are capable of. You know, there's an interesting study that has implications for mindset. They took three, they took a, a bunch of soldiers, it was a military experiment, right? And they had a march, like some insane distance. It was like, I don't know, 50 miles or something. And at each mile mark, right, they would tell them how far they've come, but they would actually tell them different distances. So the first camp, they would say, well, you've, you've only come 10 miles. And the second camp, they would tell the actual distance. Well, you're at 15. And the next, they would say, you've gone, you're at 25 right now. And they noticed that not just the morale, but their performance, their speed, everything changed depending on what they actually believed about how far they'd come, right? And those who were being fed the false information that they hadn't gone that far, they believed they hadn't done a lot of work yet, were actually outperforming all the other camps. And so there are people today who think that, you know, no, we need to have a very, just a facts and, and reality-based point of view. Everything has to be extremely matter of fact. And I think we're ignoring the fact that, like, your potential, if, if you, th like, your, what you're calling reality, okay, if it causes you to perform at under your full potential, then it's not reality, yeah. Your potential is much, if your potential is much higher, if you can shift your mental models and believe something a little bit different, then that's the reality. That is part of reality. And the stories, the myths that we have, the interpretation of the facts and events is extremely important. And that's only something that people can write themselves. Yeah. Nobody can change their mindset but us. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, you know, the, the, um, tablet that people give you sometimes uh, which has just got sugar in it or something but people take it and then they feel better because you know placebo because, yeah the placebo effect mm -hmm. you know so so they you know they, they they feel better because they think they've taken something that makes them better so it's only the brain that is making them feel better it's not anything else and and the brain is capable of of so much more than, than than even we know about it to date, like, you know, and we know a lot about it, but most people don't know enough of, about the brain anyway, and about the, the, the psychology effect of, of of believing something. But I I believe that you know you you become what you think about most, and your subconscious needs to be you know woken up in order for you to you know you need to tell yourself what you want to achieve in order for you to go on and achieve it. And and so I think so many people you know don't even don't even try to, to to get and achieve what they want out of life because they don't know that their psychology is there to help them achieve it if only they just know how to switch it on and if you're not conscious of it it'll just be driving you and you can't change it yeah you're in the passenger seat more than the driver's seat i think that's very important i think and the, the whole reason i'm bringing this up is i think it has strong implications today because yes. if you look at the way that people view other people, if you look at the language that we use when we're describing other people, right? We're talking about people like we're in war. We're talking about them in very dehumanizing ways. You know, in, in the, the Parthiad in Africa, they had to talk about, they described them as cockroaches in order to be able to do what they were doing. And, you know, in, in war, soldiers describe the enemy as an enemy combatant, right? Because it's an extremely dehumanizing way right? And, and there's a reason for this. There's a reason that we experience those that we disagree with in this way. And it's the same reason that in capital cases, when someone's on trial for murder, the defending attorney is always trying to, to convince the jury that this, this person is a human. And the prosecuting attorney is always trying to convince the jury that this person is a monster. Because it's easy to kill a monster. It's very hard to do these things to a human. I remember volunteering at the National Domestic Violence Hotline for like victims of abuse and stuff, uh, maybe 10 years ago, long time. And this mother called in about her daughter who was in an abusive relationship. And she, she asked me, she said, how can somebody say some of these things to another person? How can someone do some of these things to another person? 
And for the first time, I had to ask the question, are we always seeing another person? Or is what we're seeing more aligned to like a possession or an object? You know, I can take an object, I can take this, a pen, throw it on the ground, stomp on it. And I would never think of myself as violating its rights or, you know, a murderer or abuser of this pen because it's an object, you know, it's, it's doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's not, objects are moved by external forces and they're not self-driving, self-reflecting, you know, self-organizing like we are, human beings are. And not just that, people on the, on the left have long argued, I mean, like the general left, have argued that nature itself is endowed with an intelligence and is not just a resource in the same way that they've argued that people are not human resources, right? And they've argued that there's already an order and it's really difficult. There's a, a gentleman named Charles Eisenstein, actually, who's been on many podcasts, who talks about our imposing our order on what we perceive as chaos or imposing our good on what we perceive as evil, right? What if it's not? We have to have the humility to reflect on those that we're dehumanizing and otherizing. That what if they're not? What if there's not this, even this situation where one's right and one's wrong? And I am not advocating for like, you know, total relativism, right? Moral relativism. And just forget about thinking about what's right in general. But I mean, like Carl Jung talked about the ability to hold what he called a tension of opposites, where you're able to take your point of view and you're able to, to look at somebody else's point of view simultaneously without one being threatened by the other. And he said this was necessary in order to become a whole person or what he called a fully integrated person, an integer being a whole number. Eric Fromm, psychoanalyst, described our, as we mature in relationships in the same way. And he said that in love, you develop out of a codependent relationship, an immature love into a mature love. And when we're born as a baby, we exist in dependency with mother, right? Mother's food, mother's warmth, mother's protection, mother's everything. And then we crawl and we walk and we talk and we become more independent, but we become more alone too. And we have to learn how to relate to the world in a new way that's not returning to mother and dependency, right? It's, it's a relationship in freedom. And it means that you have to be able to have a sense of relatedness and connection and fusion with the world and others where nobody has to give up their integrity, right? Yeah. And what we're seeing today is everybody has to give up their integrity. Everybody. So there's either you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong. And this is the game that we're playing. And this is a very, a very short-lived game. And that's why we've reached the extreme that we are today. Because once you get rid of the other, there's no conflict. There's no separation anxiety anymore because there's just me there's no you but the problem is is you never get rid of you oh. or you can i can say oh you're right i'm wrong i'm going to adopt your viewpoint i'm going to adopt this belief system this ideology i don't have to think about it myself it sounds right i'm going to join this party or the team or whatever come a you know and lose myself now there's no me there's just you so there's no conflict no conflict no problem except you never get rid of you. And it's like a drug, you build a tolerance, you need to a greater and greater um, uh, domination or submission in order to get the same effect psychologically. And so now I'm on a crusade, I'm on a mission, I'm on an inquisition, I have to convert all the non-believers to my political ideology or, or whatever, right? Or to, to lose myself in a greater and greater escape. But eventually you can't because it keeps popping its ugly head back up that we're always confronted with our difference, that you are an infinitely unique individual. There has never been in the history of the universe anybody like you with your gifts, your life experiences, your point of view from your corner of the universe. And there never will be ever again in the history of the universe. And me too, this moment 
is incredibly infinitely unique. It's never happened. It will never happen again this way. And it's a beautiful thing. And we are just stomping all over it by saying that it's, it's a, a threat to who we are. When in fact, every cell in our bodies every seven years is completely different. I think we need to redefine the way that we experience others and in fact, the way that we experience ourselves. And it's gotta be in a way to where we can have that tension of opposites and we can hold a relationship with others without anybody having to give up through control or submission. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what, um, what uh, different coaching do you uh, do? Because I know you, you've got a few different uh, coaching businesses, etc. What, what, what coaching do you, do you do altogether? Well, for the last two and a half years, I've worked primarily with activists and social change entrepreneurs who are trying to make a difference. Most people believe that they can't. They just can vote and pay their taxes. And so we've worked to try and change that mental model through our grassroots leadership academy, where I've been working as mostly a trainer and curriculum developer in my previous role. So we've taken people and uh, who want to make a difference around an issue and given them the knowledge and the tools and the skills to do so, primarily from a bottom-up uh, a, a bottom solution orientation and in a way that creates more freedom instead of less. Is that more, more like a climate change activist and that sort of thing or, or a big spectrum of activists? We're, we're a nonpartisan uh, nonprofit organization. So we get people across the political spectrum, depending on the issue. So if we're working on an economic issue, usually people um, who are more conservative engage in those economic issues. And then if we're working on an issue that's more of a social issue, like criminal justice reform or decriminalization or something like that, then usually it's people who consider themselves more liberal and left. But nevertheless, we work with people across the political spectrum. It's really Frederick Douglass's quote that guides us in that regard. Unite with anybody to do right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. And um, yeah, what's your thoughts on uh, some people see, you know, the, the, the COVID and the coronavirus as, uh, as mother's nature's way of sort of, sorting us humans out a little bit and, and, and stopping us polluting the planet so much. That's what some people see, see it as. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. I haven't really thought about it, but I definitely think nature has a way of balancing. It definitely is a balancing act. And I also think that for all of our medical advancements, we still have not been able to even ward off the, the common cold. You know, and with all of our bunkers and drones of the sky, we can't secure the next breath. And I'm wondering where we're going with the, the medical story that we're going to eventually be able to eradicate death itself and overcome it. In the same way that I uh, question the control story in pretty much every aspect of human life, including the political. It's a, good, it's a really good question to ask. When I studied... Well, just before I get off the medical field, what if doctors focused on helping people get healthy more than helping remove people sickness, get people to health? Martin Seligman, the former president of the Psychological Association in the United States, he talked about this in psychology too. And he said that in psychology, we've been mostly focused on the negative, mental health, abnormal psychology and it's like yeah. taking someone who's at a negative five and trying to get them out of the negative into just your average unhealthy person like a one yeah. or a two rather than, rather he than said, working with them to get to a positive five right <laughs> yeah exactly and so he founded what he calls positive psychology which is the the study of optimal human functioning and flourishing and how to get people from that one or two to the five you know what if we did that yeah. in medicine that's the psychology that I'm into. I, you know, I, I listen to a lot of top entrepreneurs and work on how I can improve my psychology and my thinking to get to where I want to get to. My sister's a, a criminal psychologist, so she gets in, she goes into prisons and works with, you know, unsavory characters and delves into their brains to try and get them to be normal, if you like, so to from a negative five or ten or whatever they are up to, you know, when, when, you know, up to something which is just classed as normal, whereas. You know, again, I think if they concentrated on the positive stuff, then you can get them to, to not just be normal, but get them to be exceptional, you know? And I think, yeah. Um, I think in the UK, um, they're starting to do that with doctors because you know, the doctors 
prescription to uh, depression and me um, mental health and uh, any of these issues is like drugs and he was like you know have some drugs and you know turn one problem into another problem and all of that right. yeah whereas now they're starting to do a bit of um, you know let's prescribe some exercise let's prescribe something positive like you know and see if we can you know not just deal with the, the getting the negative neutral but actually try and see if we can get them you know into positive situations so yeah that's that's some change that's happened because of covid i think and uh, and that but um yeah it's, it's fascinating uh, for me you know again there's so many lazy ways of doing things and, and bad ways of doing things and we just take them as normal because it's just the way it is exactly exactly and that's the question is normal healthy what's healthy and what's the measure of that? And if it's different than normal, then what in normal is a barrier to where we're trying to get to and what needs to change? This is a big, big thing right now. Our control has a side effect, like our pills, except the side effects of pills are not side effects. They are direct effects. We just frame them as side effects because they're not the, the intended effect that we want to focus on, but they are equally affecting us as the, what we call the, the primary effect, right? Yeah. Like in medicine, we have the occupational licensing uh, units. We get, doctors must be licensed and there's a board and they control the scope of their practice. But everything outside of that scope of their practice, which is usually defined as what's being accepted in the medical field and done today, like medical innovation, for example, becomes an act of civil disobedience. There was an oncologist from Houston, Texas here who had innovated this new way of treating cancer patients using gene-targeted therapy. He would turn on and off genes using uh, certain foods in the diet and, and highly concentrated uh, pharmaceuticals to do this using kind of that epigenetic component of our biology like these calluses in my hand here, it's a genetic change. It's a result of their interaction with the environment, not necessarily, that's not hereditary, right? Like I didn't inherit calluses. So he's using this and he's effectively been able to treat certain people who their cancer has a genetic component, right? Well, this was outside of the scope of practice. And so he was brought to trial and they were, were trying to take his license, the Texas Medical Board, but also the FDA for years because he had violated the standard of care. He had acted outside the standard of care. And the question was that the uh, administrative judge posed to the Texas Medical Board's lawyers, is the Texas Medical Board opposed to medical innovation? But what they're really asking is what I'm asking the world today. And that is, are we opposed to advancing and reaching our full potential? What's the real cost of control? Every law takes away a choice. Every law takes away a possibility. And we protect against the 3%, but we hold back the other 97 as well. And it's not just sick people who are quarantined. It's healthy people as well who are stuck inside of their moldy bedrooms, you know, breathing their own carbon dioxide all day. This is the cost that we have to think about with control. There always is a downside. And what's the cost of not being able to come together and have a conversation with this and to demonize everyone that disagrees with us who's not us? We're surrounding ourselves by demons. We're creating our own hell here. And this is a choice once you become aware of it. Yeah, it's and it's also, um, it's also uh, uneven as well because, you know, uh, the, the young are disproportionately affected by this than the old because the old are the ones being protected anyway, but the young are being um, locked down and, you know, caused economic catastrophe, which they're going to have to bail themselves out of for years to come while the old have disappeared and, and not have to worry about it. And then... Uh, yeah, and deal with all the, the mental health issues and everything. So it's disproportionate. It's not, it's not, even, it's not even fair and, and equal as well, you know? So I think, um, I think that's the thing that leaders need to, to consider is, you know, what is everybody's point of view? What is the world's needs and not just the potential victims of coronavirus's needs? You know, right. What, 
what's the bigger picture here? What's the, you know, what's the fair, balanced approach to go through? You know, what, what are the things that make a difference to the world and not just to coronavirus statistics? Right, exactly. And when we look at like Sweden, for example, who they approached the pandemic a lot differently. And they only quarantined the, the sick and the vulnerable people. And then the healthy people, they were encouraged to get it and try and reach herd immunity, right? And the criticism has been, well, other people are not as healthy. Swedes are just too healthy for that. Well, then there's your focus, right? And people say, well, is this a virus? Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned that um, theory. Is this virus nature's way of you know, balancing us out for, you know, having an unhealthy relationship with the planet or each other. There seems to be a regular Mother Nature um, solution to that, you know. If you look there at cycles and stuff, there does seem to be a regular, you know. Like I, don't know if, like, I don't know if that theory is true or not, and I'll never know. But I do know that if you're healthy, then you can handle viruses a lot better than when you're unhealthy. Now, to say, like, nature intentionally created this virus to, to, oh, who knows, you know, but I do know that when you are a healthy people, you can handle adversity and challenge and viruses a lot better. And in fact, adversity and challenge makes you healthier. You don't get healthy by sitting on the couch. You don't get healthy living in a sterile environment without being exposed to germs or bacteria. And in fact, if you were to wipe it out, you would get sick. Like if you take too much antibiotics in your stomach, you wipe out the good bacteria too. And you create internal problems. If you, if you clean too much your house, if you over, you know, which is what we're doing at the moment, sanitizing everything. <laughs> right. And this it's is just probably, a good healthy dialogue. I mean, I don't really have any answers or even pretend to, but I love to think about it. And I love to encourage people to think about it and to think about some of the, the, unintended consequences as well, because that's important. Every choice has consequences and intended as well as unintended. And as an adult, we have to own those. Yeah, definitely, definitely. How do, uh, how do people get in touch with you, Nick, if they want to you know, uh, benefit from your coaching and all the other things that you do? Well, for my work with the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, they can find us through the Stand Together website right now at standtogether.org. And they can see some of the stories and some of the issues that we can help people get engaged in in a number of different ways in the nonprofit side. Yeah. Okay, good, brilliant. And uh, you've got a, a new podcast coming out soon as well. Do you wanna share some information about that and how people can listen, et cetera, what, what it's gonna be called, that sort of thing? We are, we're working on a podcast with a, with a working title of Be The Solution right now, where we're going to highlight and champion um, everyday heroes who are able to make a difference from the bottom up to try and show people it's possible and change that top-down mindset. Yeah. Okay, good. So the education that I put on my podcast is, is there to try and develop leadership and to, to develop, uh, you know, personal development and personal responsibility, if you like, to be able to become those heroes. So uh, hopefully I'll, um, I'll keep uh, an eye on those that benefit from the information that I give. And as they become heroic and take responsible, uh, responsibility for their own life and start making an impact to the world, then I can send them your way to get onto your podcast. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I love what you're doing. Keep doing it. I think you're making a great difference and I really appreciate you having me on for this conversation. Yes, brilliant. And uh, you know, unconscious me and you probably could, uh, could uh, theorize and philosophize and, and, and talk till, till you know, the next couple of years, but uh, unconscious we both got lives to, to lead and I've got someone else I'm going to get on my podcast soon as well. But it's been great uh, getting you on the podcast and having a, a chat with you and, and, and trying to set the world to rights, if you like. And uh, I look forward to, uh, Thanks, to catching up with you again sometime. I would love it. Take yes. care. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks a lot. And uh, have a great day. You as well. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Right. And there's nothing else left for me to add or to say now other than have a great day. I know I will. And thanks very much for listening. Cheers. Bye-bye.
This episode was brought to you in conjunction with startup and SME web design business, 333 Websites, which are available at www.333websites.co.uk and Mike Armstrong's Coaching, which is available at uh, mikearmstrong.me forward slash coaching. Um, There's nothing else left for me to say now other than have a great day. I know I will. And don't forget... You can do it. Thank you very much for listening. Cheers. Bye-bye.